What's up everybody? This week we finish our discussion on pro wrestling in the 90s and look at the men who were WWF champion. That and a whole lot more is to come because maybe Hulk Hogan's finger is stronger than your entire body, brother. Welcome to the show. You know, we will talk about that incident later on in the show, and it is a doozy. Do you know what happened? Some people say that it happened this way, some people say it happened that way, but we'll get to it anyway. How you doing, guys? Hope everybody is doing okay on this wonderful, wonderful Sunday, or Monday, or Tuesday, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, it's really, really good to be back. Uh, we're on time for a change, which, you know, makes, makes, the whole, <laughs> makes a whole lot of difference. Um... And, you know, we've got a good show ahead. Like I said, we're going to look at some more stuff. We're going to have some uh, some trivia. And, you know, we're going to look forward to what we're going to do after this uh, round of basically wrestling nostalgia. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things to talk about. And, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad of all the feedback I've gotten. And I thank everybody for taking the time to download. Um, I want to toot my own horn for just a brief second. Um I found out this week that uh, this podcast has been listened to on five of the six inhabited continents. Uh, so North America, Asia, Africa, uh, Oceania, Australasia, whatever you want to call it, and Europe. So guys, thank you from the bottom of my heart. My voice and my opinions have been heard worldwide and... Whew, yeah, I'm sorry for that. Uh, <laughs> but um, i got a couple of things uh, I want to talk about before we go ahead into the uh, new episode, into the, into the segment, so just bear with me. Um, I'm looking for ideas of what to do for the extra content in the YouTube channel. Um, one of the things I wanted to do was was do right here, right now, just little commentaries, little monologues, little things here or there, you know, just, just to hone my craft a little bit. You know, is that something you guys would be interested in? Let me know. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and do it. Um... We are planning on doing extra episode 5 in the next week, week and a half or so, because our trivia girl um, was sick this week. She, not sick sick, but she had problems with her voice, she sounded snotty, and she, she had a hard time recording, so she will not be handling the trivia this week, this will be all down to me, unfortunately. Um, but we're going to go ahead and, and spend some time with, with her later on this weekend, and I'll go ahead and put it up in an extra episode where we're going to talk about uh, pro wrestling, drawing, video games, you know, whatever, 13 year old, oh my god, 13 years old. No, I feel old. Uh, but whatever, you know, whatever she wants to talk about, just to get her on there. You know, one of the things I, I said I was going to do with all the little skit thingies was get, you know, my family involved. They wanted to be a part of it. So, you know, that's why that's why I have the sarcastic teen. That's why I have, you know, the, the counterpoint guy. And, you know, I've got Sarah on here and everything like that. So, you know, we are going, we are going to... Um, we're going to do that, and uh, look out for that on YouTube and on our feed at a later point in time. Uh, talking of which, I also have a personal request for you guys. Um, I, you know, I'm at the point in my life where I'm a musical snob, as Sarah alleged during the Britpop episode and the Women of Rock episode. Um, so I'm looking for some new music. Uh, one of the great things about working with some of the bands that I've been working with is, you know, introduction to some new things, and, you know, I've... I've, I've enjoyed what I've listened to, but I'm looking for more stuff, so, you know, I'm looking for basically, and again, I'm looking for kind of anything that is good, and by good, I mean, you know, good lyrics, good tune, it doesn't have to necessarily be guitar-based, uh, you know, I've been listening to a lot of classical music with uh, beats behind it, 
Um, you know, I have been listening to a lot of guitar stuff. I've been listening to a lot of Celtic-based rock, you know, kind of like the Dropkick Murphys, Flogging Mollies, and, you know, anything 90s, too. You know, um, I didn't realize that I would like things like Dave Matthews Band. I, I wasn't a big fan, but, you know, I've, I've listened to some stuff, and, and it's, it's some good stuff. So, guys, if you have any recommendations, let me know, because, you know, I can only listen to uh, What's the Story Morning Glory so many times before I start falling asleep. So, uh... <laughs> And by the way, that's not always his best album. So, with all that in mind, guys, if you are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, look up because maybe pod. Uh, we have a new blog out this week uh, where I talk about my feelings on the state of professional wrestling. So you can look that up at because maybe podcast.wordpress.com. And if you don't find the time to watch whole episodes or you don't have the time to watch all episodes, check out our YouTube channel. We've got uh, sample episodes there that we also update to uh, the Facebook page. And it's just little clips, maybe a, maybe the skit, maybe a monologue or two, but just something, you know, extra content out there. So, with all that in mind, we are now going to take a final look at pro wrestling in the 90s, and we are going to examine everything from the Royal Rumble 1998 to Starcade 1999, and look at where wrestling is right now and the legacy of what this went, went through. So guys, you know, enjoy, and I will get more to you at the end of the episode. Scenes of the 90s. Alright guys, thank you for taking the time to join us. We are on our last part. Uh, this is going to be basically wrapping up from 1998 to 1999 and a little bit into 2000 and what the legacy of this time period was in professional wrestling. So we're going to jump right in. Um, basically, as we left off, Starcade 1997 was a big mistake by WCW in how they ended the main event. Rap. Well, WWF sensed that and kind of, kind of like a shark, you know, they, they could sense that they were bleeding. So Vince McMahon promotes a really, really good main event to the Royal Rumble. It's Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker. And it kind of shapes where everything is going, especially the WrestleMania season um, and, and so on and so forth. And Shawn Michaels beats The Undertaker in a casket match. And Steve Austin wins the Royal Rumble. So that sets up your main event for WrestleMania. But during this, um, Shawn Michaels, the man who would orchestrate or help orchestrate the Montreal Screwjob to make his career better, is severely injured. To the point where he, he breaks his back, for lack of a better term. He wrestles one more match, um, which will be at WrestleMania, and then he's gone for four and a half years. So... And we'll get to that here in, in, in just a minute. But, I mean, at WrestleMania 14, nothing really much happened in, in either organization, really. You know, uh, Bret Hart uh, was finding his feet in WCW. The WCW NWO thing kept on going. As I mentioned last week, Sting was stripped of the world title in a stupid decision and then was won a tournament, which, like, what was the point? You know, just keep him the champion. Have a rematch the next night on Nitro and have Sting beat Hogan the way he was supposed to and then, bang, Sting's world champion for a while. But really, nothing really happened. Um, maybe Terry Funk debuting as Chainsaw Charlie, uh, Chainsaw on his way out of a wooden box. But uh, WrestleMania 14, really, again, like WrestleMania 12, is only remembered pretty much for, for one or two things. Uh, you've got the dumpster match between the New Age Outlaws, Mick Foley and Chainsaw Charlie. Um, that was a weird, weird match. They've only done like two or three of those since then. Uh, the, you, you basically 
dump your opponents in a dumpster. It was a violent match. I mean, you know, that, that's one of the reasons people remember it. But basically put, and also the Undertaker-Kane match, they were coming off a year-long feud. Um, but you had Mike Tyson. Uh, Mike Tyson, because of the bite fight, is serving a suspension. Uh, he's brought to WWF to act as an enforcer for the main event, immediately giving them mainstream credibility. Now, during this time, WCW had, like, calm... Uh, Carl Monroe, Carl Malone, I'm not sure of his exact name, apologies, and um, Dennis Rodman come in for some shows. But Mike Tyson is Mike Tyson, you know, with all due respect to Rodman, with all due respect to Marone, M- Malone, whatever his name was. You know, it, it Mike Tyson's Mike Tyson, legitimate badass sports star who, you know, who you need, who you need for something like this. And Vince McMahon, as out of touch as some people think that he is, was smart enough to realize nobody's watching. Mike Tyson is going to bring in a whole bunch of people and people are not going to be familiar with the people and the storylines because when we were lost on top, a lot of those guys have gone. But how to hype the event? WWF produced a movie quality trailer for every single match on the card. So every single punch, kick, narration, um, you know, for the build-up of every match on the card. Every match. And Kevin Nash... Kevin Sullivan and WCW were both like, yeah, we're dead. It's done. Uh, WWF is going to come back strong, and we know it. And what happened in the event was that Austin wins, and in the weeks leading up to to the event, Mike Tyson was aligned with DX, with Shawn Michaels and Triple H. Well, at the last second, Tyson shows his true colors, and he's actually not part of DX, he turned at the last minute, and then, to be fair to Shawn Michaels, very few people would take a, a, a punch from Mike Tyson. And Tyson punches Shawn, knocks him completely out, drapes a, a Steve Austin t-shirt over him, which wasn't planned, did the DX crotch chop, and walked away. While Michaels was, like, really, really angry at this, he felt like he'd been humiliated, and... To be fair, he was, and a lot of people would have more sympathy for him if backstage at the time he wasn't, you know, to quote Jim Connett, a Viagra and so, you know. But uh, this is this is the official kickoff of the Attitude Year, although I still think the Pillman's Got a Gun angle is what was the unofficial start because it had been going that way for a while. But this this is it. This is the kickoff. The iconic moment of, Aus- of Austin stunning Michaels, holding the belt in the corner. This is it. This is where WWF started heading to the Ascension. And, you know, Shawn Michaels, I don't know how he would have fared in the Attitude Era. I really don't. Because, I mean, he was going through heavy drug use at the time. Um, at the Rumble, like I mentioned, his back was broken in a couple of places. He, he damaged a few vertebrae, landed on the casket uh, in a casket match. And, you know, he was very, very popular in the locker room. You know, very popular. I mean, everybody loved Shawn Michaels. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, inverted commas here. The, the performer Shawn Michaels was, was respected, but the person Shawn Michaels was hated. That's the best way I can describe it. And people legitimately thought that Michaels was was going to shoot on Austin and not lose. So, what happened? Well, The Undertaker is the unofficial union head, for lack of a better term. He's head of the union, right? He's he's head of, you know, he's, he's the leader of the boys in the back. And he's also very, very close to Vince McMahon. So, the legend goes that uh, after his match with Kane, The Undertaker showered, put his gloves back on, taped him up in front of Michaels, 
and set in what's known as the gorilla position. That's the area where the TV producers and the wrestlers get their instructions from Vince McMahon and everything like that, named after the legendary Gorilla Monsoon. And Michael saw this, cussed, went out, lost, and as Michael's laid down, Taker took his tape off. Now, that's just a legend. It's been thrown around. Some people have said it's not real. Some people have said it is real. I don't know. But, I mean, Michael's deserved that kind of behavior because of the fact that he was politicking all the time, his drug use, his attitude was alienating from everybody in the locker room, including Triple H, who was, at this point, getting sick and tired of being, you know, guilt by association. And... You know, Michaels went away, he came back as, as, an, as an on-screen authority figure, as a commentator, and he would just go deeper and deeper in a downward spiral. Uh, eventually, in around about 2002, he uh, returned, he became a born-again Christian, and he, be, he, he came back in 2002 and had like a career renaissance. He had like eight years before, four years off, eight years... And people say that his second run is better than his first in the quality matches. But not only that, he became a respected veteran, including by people who, who despised him. I mean, he, he repaired relationships with Bret Hart, of, you know, of all people. Now, a lot of people say that, you know, it's still, it's, it seemed disingenuous. And I've listened to some of his interviews, and it just seems like he's got that kind of personality. My daughter's exactly the same way, of they can mean something completely and utterly genuine, but at the same time come across as, you know, disingenuous, which, you know, is, is well, it, it, it's one of those things that can't be helped, but, you know, it is what it is. So when Michaels left, Triple H knew that DX was just getting started as a brand and as, as you know, this, this potential big stable. Now, a lot of the stables that have been about recently had some genuine, you know, they were legitimate friends and family and, and close people who were together. So, you know, as, as as crappy as the angle was in the gang wars, for example, the biker guys consisted of a set of cousins and a best friend, you know. Um, the Nation of Domination former tag team people in the low, in the uh, minor league, so, so, so to speak. So, you know, Triple H needed people like that around him, people who he got on with and people who, you know, who, who, could, get, who could get over with him. And the first thing he did was recruit Sean Waltman. Now, Sean Waltman was the first person to jump back in the Monday Night Wars. You remember Hall Nash, Waltman himself, uh, Randy Savage... You know, Lex Luger, etc., etc. They'd all jumped from WWF to WCW. He might not have been a big star, but as I mentioned before, Waltman is a respected worker, if maybe like Shawn Michaels, not maybe respected personally. But, you know, everybody says that Waltman can go in the ring and, you know, he knows what he's doing. So for him coming back, that was a big key, big coup for the WWF at the time. And also he brought together Raw Dog and um, Billy Gunn, the New Age Outlaws, two solid, solid tag team wrestlers who they'd worked with before, and again, it just seemed the four guys and China were all close, so it made sense. On the other side of things, there was The Nation, who was fresh off the the gang war storyline, which was a dud, as far as I was concerned, and, you know, The Rock is the leader of that after ousting the original leader, Farouk, and he's got, again, a couple of tag team wrestlers, you know, and but all these guys got along. And that's kind of the feud of 1998 through about 2001, Triple H versus The Rock. Uh, you know, th they fought many, many times over many, many championships. Uh, the latter match at SummerSlam 1998 is considered a classic. Uh, SummerSlam 2000, uh, WrestleMania 2000, maybe not. They had an Iron Man match, the, the only the second one at the time. You know, so it, it was a real, real good start, a kickstart to, you know, 
here are these two factions, these two organizations, and then the leaders are going to feud for years to come. That You know, it was really, really good. And not only that, the matches were good, too. Triple H doesn't get nearly enough credit for being a good in-ring hand, and, and he doesn't, you know, because of his backstage politicking. But at the same time, you know, he's he is a very, very good, talented, well-rounded wrestler who knows psychology, and he knows how to make things work. Yes, he doesn't do flippy stuff. Yes, he, he he's slow and methodical. But at the same time, he can fight and he can sell. He's very, very underrated in terms of his talent. So, you know, that I, I wanted to say that. Now, um, one of the other things going on at this time, Steve Austin. Steve Austin, um, his first feud had to be against somebody who could seem like a threat to Austin, but you knew Austin was going to, deep down, was going to beat. So they put him up against Mick Foley. Um, Foley is a guy who I love. I love Mick Foley. I think Mick Foley is a wonderful, wonderful man. Being described as the nicest guy in the wrestling business and too nice for the wrestling business. But in my opinion, that his nicety is, you know, he's he's a very, very honorable man. Um, you know, he's a family man. He's a, he's, a chi- he's a man-child in the sense that, you know, he gets to enjoy all these adolescent things. He loves Christmas. Um, he's been on the board of many, many charities. Make-A-Wish, Rain... He is an absolute gentleman. He's a tough, tough, tough son of a gun, but you know what? He doesn't have to prove it, and I think he is a fantastic human being. But his wrestling ability was known for putting on great matches, but he, for some reason, he lacked a little something that was seen of him making the top. I mean, somebody described, I think it was a referee that he worked with back in the day, said that he would either be the bottom of the top or the top of the bottom. And to to Mick Foley's credit, the type of person that he is, he fought his way and made it to the top. I mean, he became a, a three-time world champion. But at the same time, you know, at this point, nobody really... They, they saw him as a legitimate threat, but not really world championship material. So, um, for modern wrestling fans, The Miz, I guess? Not in terms of style, but in terms of positioning. Or maybe Sami Zayn, you know, one, one of those guys. Somebody who, who's, for some reason, not going to make it to the top, but, you know, whatever. So it's Austin v. Foley. And Foley has turned on the fans, and he's become he's basically aligned himself with Vince McMahon, who was feuding with Austin at the time. And one of the reasons Foley turned on the fans was because um, he felt that he was disrespected. And, th- and this was a personal uh, feeling, too. He felt that he was disrespected as he was bleeding... And his tag team partner was in, you know, had had a severe back injury, and the fans were chanting for someone else. And he took that as a personal insult because, I mean, it it is an insult, you know. You if you have a band on stage, the support act is on stage playing the show. You don't start chanting for the main, you know, the main guys, especially if they've worked damn hard to get where they are, and they deserve to be where they are. So basically, you know, Foley against Austin, the guys were friends for a long, long time, they work really, really well together, they had the great chemistry, and this is what ends the 80-plus winning streak of WCW, Foley versus Austin. And it also starts, too, you know, more of the full, of the Austin v. McMahon, because this is where Vince had his first legitimate match, and this is the first time anybody saw Vince McMahon as this big, beefy, you know, big, beefy dude. But the ratings for WCW were still high, but, I mean, fans were getting sick and tired of what they were starting to offer. Um, basically, but it had to do with new talent. Um, aside from maybe DDP, The Giant, Harlem Heat, uh, Bagwell, WCW didn't have any guys who were theirs, if that makes sense. Uh, they didn't have guys who were 
initially part of their, their product, or they made their debut, or their national debut in, in WCW, and got their exposure there. Um, they either relying on Hogan, Hall, Nash, Savage, you know, the old WWF guys. They still had the remnants of the NWA guys in Sting, Luger, and um, Flair. Or they were using the ECW guys that they hoovered up just to kind of shore up the numbers and do pretty much nothing else with it. The NWO at this point had split into NWO Hollywood and NWO Wolfpack. There's never going to be a payoff. The fans are starting to tire of it. So what does WCW do? Well, do they try and get some uh, old WWF guys in? Or do they hit the Goldberg? They found former footballer Bill Goldberg. Uh, he was working in the power plant, which was WCW's developmental league, and you know Goldberg was not a t- he had a, he had a silent charisma, and he was not the most talented in ring, to put it lightly, but he knew what how to do it. And basically, what I mean by that is he knew to go in, beat someone up in a squash, and walk out and say, "Who's next?" and launched into a phenomenal. Un, I think it's only just been beaten by Asuka, but a 173-0 winning streak. Now, everybody has said that that number has been artificially inflated. And of course it is. He'd show up on the scene in his debut 1-0, and then three weeks later he was like 10-0. and And WCW didn't run too many uh, live events or house shows at the time. So he, like by the time that it ended, it was more like 50-0. and And what happened was, and we'll go to how it ended here later on in the show... But uh, Goldberg was picking up momentum, and WCW panicked after WWF jumped them in the ratings. Instead of promoting Goldberg versus Hollywood Hogan, which is a pay-per-view quality main event with the names, they promoted it on free TV. And it's in the Georgia Dome. So just, just imagine this, right? WWF is beating WCW in the ratings. And then all of a sudden, WCW takes them over. And what WWF does is at Madison Square Garden, put Steve Austin versus The Rock live on TV. It, it just doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. So, you know, they shot themselves in the foot, denied themselves millions of dollars. And, you know, for what? For one week of ratings? It, it, it just... Mm-mm. Now, interesting point. Goldberg, aside from the very first world champion, becomes the only undefeated man to win either a WWF, WCW, ECW World Championship. Which is, you know, fantastic. Asuka would become the first undefeated woman to become world champion. That was in uh, NXT, but, I mean, Goldberg's the first man. So, so WWF, um, around about 1990, mid-96, early 97, they put a guy called Vince Russo in charge of the storylines. And now he's gotten more power. And some of the older guys like Jim Cornette and Jim Ross are off the creative stuff. And he starts pushing the envelope in terms of content. You know, instead of it being a sport for all ages and all genders, it is now a young man's area. And, you know, you could say that because the amount of girls who followed wrestling in the 80s, you can talk to, in the 70s and 80s, you can talk to any old-timer, like Jim Cornette, as I mentioned, um, Paul Bearer, who, God rest his soul, you know, so on and so forth, and they would tell you, you know, that there were groupies in every town, that the women at the shows were just as violent and passionate about this stuff as the men, but now with guys like Russo involved, female wrestlers and female, you know, female characters are used as eye candy, nothing else, just eye candy. I mean, look, right, Jacqueline was a great wrestler, Luna was a good wrestler, and China was an okay wrestler. But they were always pushed to the side for the likes of Sable, uh, Deborah, the cat, you know, who appeared about in bikinis and, and naked. I mean, you know, it just, it it wasn't, 
it, as a female wrestler, it must have been hard to watch. Um, then you had the gimmicks that, that, that Russo wrote. Instead of The Undertaker being an undead Western mortician, he's now running a satanic cult, drinking blood. Um, the Godfather went from being uh, Carmen Mustafa, a, a legitimate badass fighter, to a stereotypical black pimp. Uh, Mark Henry becomes a sexually obsessed man. A former Olympic weightlifter, Mark Henry becomes sexually obsessed, sexual chocolate. And then, you know, DX show up for a segment in blackface. Now, the segment was was good to parody. It was a good parody of that, but they didn't have to go all the way with the blackface. And then you had Mark Henry, you know, seducing a man in in drag because he was he was hidden on China, and then all of a sudden China hires, you know, a cross-dresser. And, you know, it, it just... It was bad, poor taste, and, you know, on the one hand, it was, it was Crash TV, it was the lowest of the low, and the wrestling became an afterthought, the championships were used as nothing more than props, there were constant heel and face changes, the championships bouncing around, you know, and it, yeah, it became, it became the norm, and let me tell you how it became the norm, when Russo left, Later on in the year. We're going to jump to 2000 very, very briefly. Edge and Christian won the WWF Tag Team Championships at WrestleMania 2000. They would become a seven-time tag team champion during their run as a tag team. They were only a tag team for 18 months longer after that event. So they won the tag championships seven times. That devalued it, especially considering that uh, the British Bulldogs, one of the greatest tag teams of all time, were only a one-time champion. So, you know, TV matches are becoming short. They're being devalued, and nobody knows what to do next. So, you know, it's... it's, it, And it's starting to affect a lot of the guys, too. I mean, like Mick Foley, right? Mick Foley, I mentioned earlier, was one of the... Uh, is the everyman in pro wrestling, right? Everybody loved Mick Foley, the person, and everything like that. But his characters were starting to get no responses. Like, every time he'd win, no booze, no claps, nothing. Apathy, total, total apathy. And the office saw this and ended very, very abruptly the Mick Foley-Steve Austin feud as well as the Kane-Undertaker feud. Because what was going to happen is Foley and Austin were going to compete in a Hell in a Cell match. And the Undertaker and Kane were, were going to compete in a First Blood match. While they tweaked the card a little bit so that the Undertaker and Foley were going to go in the Hell in a Cell and the Undertaker and Kane were going to go in the First Blood match. Now, Mick Foley on his, uh, when found out that this was the match that was going on went to the WWF office and with his mentor and friend, Terry Funk, tried to figure out ways to beat the Hell in a Cell match the previous year with Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker where Kane debuted. So, you know, they, they watched the match and they started joking around and they came up with the idea of Mick being thrown off the cage. Foley spoke to The Undertaker and they he reluctantly agreed. So Foley, at the beginning of the match, climbed up they started th- messing around, you know, doing what they do, punching, kicking, blah, 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 blah. And Foley gets thrown by the seat of his pants off the cage. And there's a great, great moment where Jim Ross, the greatest sports announcer of all time, in my opinion, screamed, good God almighty, that killed him. As God is my witness, he is broken in half. Now, this was planned. You know, this was planned by the guys and Foley getting on a stretcher that was, you know, that was planned. And then Foley got off the stretcher. He's concussed at this point. He's got a dislocated shoulder. And he's got a dodgy kidney. A bruised kidney, I think it ended up being. And, you know, he carried on the match. So that was all kind of planned. Foley climbs up the cage. And they start fighting again. And the Undertaker hits a move called the Choke Slam. 
if you are unfamiliar with the choke slam, it's where you grab somebody in a chokehold, literally by the scruff of the neck, pick them up and drop them on their back. Very, very painful move and it's a very, very hard move to take. But Mick Foley was 285 pounds and The Undertaker was at least 275, legitimately, not their wrestling build. And that's just chain link fence. And it was set up in a way where as soon as Foley hit that chain link fence, his 287 pounds being thrown to the floor, busted open, and Foley fell the 15 feet from the top of the cell into a hard WWF ring. And, yeah, that wasn't planned. He was supposed to be chokeslammed on the cage, and then The Undertaker was going to go down, but no, that's what happened. Jerry Lawler, uh, never a man lost for words, matter-of-factly goes, oh my god, that's it, he's dead. And Jim Ross broke character, screaming, will somebody please stop the damn match? I mean, Foley was knocked out, but he got up and finished the match. He got he, he didn't lay down. He, th- he thought the show must go on, got up and finished the match. That is cr- absolutely crazy. That's why I love and, and worry about Mick Foley at the same time. Um, I mean, he, Foley got on the offensive, hitting him with chairs and, and, and his finishing move and with thumbtacks. Which led to one of the funniest moments he said, Foley said, that um, he went up to The Undertaker after the match, covered in thumbtacks, and said, Take it, did I use thumbtacks out there? And The Undertaker says, Cactus, look at your arm, because they referred to him as Cactus Jack, which was his original character. And Foley went, okay, and walked off. Now, Foley suffered a lot of injuries, um, a concussion, he lost, um, he had a hole in his bottom lip, he had a tooth through his nose, um, dislocated shoulder, bruised kidney, Vince McMahon shook Foley by the hand and thanked him for all his contributions to the WWF and all the work he's done for the WWF and the the fact that he would put his body on the line for the WWF. But he would be fired if he ever did those kind of stunts ever again. And Foley admitted that in terms of his career and his marriage, it put a strain on the pair of them. Um, you know, he, he, he respected Vince McMahon, he liked Vince McMahon, still does, but at the same time, you know, he, 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 he maybe went too far, and also he put a strain on his marriage, too, because like I mentioned, Mick Foley's a family man, and, you know, his wife was angry, rightly so, you know, um, at basically what he was doing to earn a living. So that was a display of violence that the WWF had never seen before. And, and, you know, it's legend now. People, when they think of Mick Foley, they think of The Cell. So how does an organization that is known for putting on um, predetermined combat with guys working together, to make it look like they're hurting each other, and they're not really hurting each other, how do you fix that? Well, you start a shoot fight tournament. Uh, a tough man contest. Because at this at the time right now, remember, we're in the mid-90s. So, mixed martial arts is not a... is, is kind of a new thing. There's no UFC yet. All, all the UFC that we know it to be. Um, you know, people are called Ultimate Fighter and Mixed Martial Artists and stuff like that. But um, with Dan Seven, Steve Blackman and Ken Shamrock, uh, Tank Abbott too, their matches were starting to look more like legitimate fights. So, you know, with this coming on... You have um, you have guys, you know, thinking that they're tough. Bradshaw, JBL, became Boston about how he could beat anybody in a bar fight. Okay. Vince Russo hated JBL, so went to Vince McMahon and said, you know what, I'd like to see JBL get his clock cleaned. Let's do a tournament of tough guys with prize money involved, like a legitimate fight. 
Hell yeah, Vince McMahon loved this. Entry was vol- voluntary. And wisely, only the lower card talent volunteered for this just to get some TV time. Um, now, at the time, a journeyman veteran by the name of Dr. Death, Steve Williams, who had never really been a major success in the US, although a big draw in Japan, and he, he had a decent level in the old NWA, um, this tournament was allegedly supposed to do two things. One, it was for, so Russo could see Bradshaw get his clock cleaned, and two, to push Williams as the next big guy, because he was a tough guy, and Jim Ross, who was the, who at the time was the head of brain and talent, he and Williams were close, very, very close. So, um, you know, knowing of Dr. Death's reputation, uh, allegedly he was paid the winner's purse upon the end of his first round fight, and he was seen as the company's favorite, because uh, this this thing was, was judged like a legitimate fight, and it was judged on um, points as well as, you know, a knockout, right? And people were saying that Dr. Death's points were always scored a little bit higher. Now, it wasn't scored like a boxing match in the sense that, you know, um, I think you threw the most punches and you did better, so I'm giving you this round. Like, every time there was a takedown, you got, like, three points. Or if you, you know, if you knocked somebody down, you'd get five points or something like that. So that's how it was judged. And, yeah, what happened is Dr. Death fist Bart Gunn in round two, tore his hamstring, became literally a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, and Bart Gunn knocked out Dr. Death in round two. Well, that kind of upset the office. Uh, Bart Gunn won the tournament. He, he won the whole thing. He knocked out the Godfather, and he knocked out JBL. And WWF kind of rewarded Gunn by letting him sit out for six months. And never mention him or the tournament while he's not there. Yeah. That, 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 what a waste of time on TV. 15 minutes every week for about 12 weeks. And nothing for the winner. The other thing too about it was it cost the company a lot of money in, in uh, prize money. It cost the company a lot of money in medical bills. Uh, wrestlers were trained for... Um, I mean, pro wrestlers are trained for exhibition and performance rather than legitimate competition. So many got injured. And I mean, within a year, 12 of the 16 participants were either retired because of injuries they suffered during the tournament or fired. The biggest irony of all this is that JBL is the only guy who was a success out of the tournament. And the tournament was designed to humble him. Way to go, Russo. Way to go. So I haven't spoken about WCW for a few minutes, and there's kind of a good reason for that. Because it I mean, it wasn't doing much. Uh, you know, it was trying to find its feet again after, you know, going behind in the ratings. And the one thing they did was bring back the one piece of the Hulk Hogan puzzle that they hadn't had before. That was the Ultimate Warrior. And Warrior went to WCW, spent eight weeks rambling, ranting, and raving. And took part in one of the worst main events... In professional wrestling history. The Ultimate Warrior vs. Hulk Hogan match. At uh, Halloween Havoc. Is considered possibly the worst. Worst match. In WCW history. And you know for good reason. Now there was a lot of backstage stuff going on at the time. Uh, Warrior. Was hard to work with. Shock horror gasp. And uh, Hogan was hard to work with. Shock horror gasp. And people believe that the only reason the Ultimate Warrior was brought back. 
was so that Hogan could get his win back from WrestleMania 6, because, you know, he is a very, very non-egocentrical guy. And that left a bad taste in a lot of guys for, in WCW's mouth, a lot of the fans, and they're starting to go, you know what, this is getting ridiculous. And uh, Hogan leaves the company for a little while. Um, he, he announces his, quote, retirement. Um, he just, he just you know, he, he, he says he feels burned out and, and launches a run for president. Which would be, you know, which would just be a work, as they say. But, um, and aside from that, I mean, WWF and WCW are both going head-to-head. And they kind of were cir- mid-circle stories. You know, they, they kind of didn't go anywhere. So it's a Survivor Series 1998, WWF uh, launched a tournament for the world title, and, you know, to, to create a new bad guy and a new hero, they rehashed the Montreal Screwjob, this time a creative move, not legitimate. But, I mean, you know, aside from crowning the Rock as world champion and screwing over Mick Foley, there really wasn't that much going on, you know. Um, I mentioned uh, SummerSlam 1998 had that fantastic ladder match. But, I mean, again, it just, it, th- there was nothing really there. WCW, however, has got problems. They are having a host of injuries, and many of the main guys are out. So, basically, it came to tag team wrestler at the time, Kevin Nash, uh, challenging Goldberg for the WCW title. Now, Nash, at this point, is a controversial figure. Um, a lot of people claim he was on the booking committee, and he used his political stroke to win the world title. Well, what happened was, uh, with the help of Scott Hall... And a stun gun. Nash beat Goldberg for 173-1. and won. And, like I said, a lot of fans claim that Nash was using political stroke and using a position on the booking committee to influence the title change. Which would be a good story if it was true. Now, Nash did have a lot of political stroke backstage, don't get me wrong, and he had the ear of Eric Bischoff. Kind of like he had the ear of Vince McMahon. But Nash consistently maintains that that match happened in December 98. He did not join the booking team until February of 1999. However, he also claimed that Goldberg, he was very, very popular, but it was also artificial. Uh, the TV show, they would mute the crowd mics when he was being booed, and they would pump in the, you know, the whole Goldberg. They'd just pump that in. And Nash was getting genuine reactions whenever he'd walk into arenas. And to be fair, Nash was getting over as a good guy, and, you know, fans were loving him. And especially in old WWF territories in that northeast area of the United States, that, you know... That was true. And Nash also claims that uh, the, the plan was, and we'll go into this here in just a second. Um, Nash claims that uh, Goldberg was going to be fed a stream of bad guys. And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But he claims that it was, you know, the whole point of that and the next thing that we're going to talk about when we get to WCW... Uh, you know, was was going to be this, and I'll get to it here in just a second. But um, what happened next was, you know, as I mentioned, in WWF, Mick Foley was screwed out of the WWF Championship in a double-cross final of the tournament. WWF was kind of saving money at the time. You know, they, they, they basically do two nights of TV every two weeks. Like, like you know, one a week. But um, they do a live on week A and a taped on week B. So they'd save a lot of money. And because of this, things would happen on the live show that wouldn't happen on the tape show. But unfortunately, this time, uh, WWF taped a world championship change. Mick Foley was about to win the world title, his first of what would become three world championship brands. And he won in December, but it was only going to be shown on the the 4th of January in 1999. Uh, The night that it was supposed to wear, WCW had a live show with the Georgia Dome, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is their spiritual home. 
And, you know, at the beginning of the show, Tony Schiavone was was mocking that WWF had taped their show. And, you know, w- you know we're going to promise you a real main event, a rematch between uh, Nat, Nash and Goldberg. Now, take a step back for a second. WWF had already given the result of the match away. So, that, you know, their website had already said that Mick Foley is the new champion. Come to you in Monday to see how it went down. So, what happened was, at the beginning of the show, Goldberg's arrested on stalking charges for Miss Elizabeth, which is ridiculous. Um, Hogan, who had been away for several months, said, you know what? I'm here, brother. We promised these people a world title match. Why don't you and me one-on-one, brother? Nash accepted. The segment ends, and as the segment ends, Eric Bischoff allegedly got in the uh, commentator Tony Giovanni's ear, and he said the following. Fans, as Hollywood Hogan walks away, and you look at this 40,000 plus on hand, if you're even thinking about changing the channel to our competition, fans do not. Because we understand that Mick Foley, who wrestled here one time as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. <laughs> That's going to put some butts in the seats. <laughs> well, they shot themselves in one of their feet. Um, 500 to 800,000 people immediately changed the channel. I mean, everybody loved Mick Foley. He was a lovable character. He was respected. I mean, he had a great psychology. He had a willingness to do things that, that you know... He learned, he learned it the hard way. He could do comedy. He could do uh, Mad Men. Um, you know, he put his family in jeopardy for the Hell in a Cell match. He had a match with The Rock a couple of weeks later after this where he took 12 unprotected chair shots to the head. And, you know... I mean, he worked through all that stuff, but I mean, that's the po- that's where he was willing to go to entertain the fans. So, WCW has their main event. Hogan pokes Nash in the chest. Nash lays down. One, two, three, Hogan's the new world champion. Nash held the belt for seven days. And... It just did... It, it, it went wrong. Um, Kevin Nash... Says that uh, combination Hogan's creative control and an idea of getting Goldberg to be an even bigger star was to blame for the finger poker doom not working in the long term. Now, in the night, it was a horrible, horrible thing to do. It just seemed like they were spitting on the belt. But if you hear what Nash has said in in past interviews about what the plan was going to be, it kind of makes sense, but not really. I mean, they could have had a competitive match where they had a screwy finish. You know, they could have wrestled for a few minutes instead of poking the finger. But um, what Nash wanted to do, because that night after the after the event, the NWO reformed, and what he wanted to do was to get the NWO reformed to a, a group of six or seven guys. So it was going to be Hogan, Hall, Nash, uh, Jeff Jarrett, Bret Hart, Scott Steiner, and I think the Giant. Right, so seven guys. And the idea was going to be if if Nash uh, if if um, Goldberg wanted to get his hands on Hogan, he had six guys in front of him. So it's kind of feeding Goldberg these these heels, these bad guys, and then bang, there's nobody left for Goldberg and Hogan, and Goldberg wins again and becomes two-time world champion. That's a good idea, but I don't think that's a lot of people are skeptical of that, and I think it's just an excuse. And also, it wouldn't have worked anyway because Goldberg almost lost his arm in an in an event a couple of months later. So Nash says, you know, this heel machine that we've built doesn't have a baby face to go against it. And, you know, a lot of people were done with WCW at that point. I mean, it literally shot themselves in both feet. 
Now, what's funny about this is that um, after that moment, you know, for the next couple of months, there were signs showing up in WWF Arena saying, Mick Foley put my ass in the seat. So uh, it, it did put some butts in seats. Well done, Shivani. Uh But, um, you know... So, WWF won that night, and that was it. WCW wouldn't win again in the ratings war unless they were uncontested. You know, and it's easy to win if you have no opponent. Um, no, my luck, I'd still tie. Um, <laughs> but WWF would not exactly was not exactly, you know, great at that point. I mean, uh, WrestleMania 15, I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and it just seemed like a $50 edition of Monday Night Raw. I mean... After the year before was seen as a rebirth of the company, this just seemed like a, a three-hour TV show that I paid extra for the privilege of. Um, let me give you an example. Remember how I mentioned earlier that uh, Vince Russo saw championships as just props and, you know, distraction? In the feuds going up to WrestleMania, the Road Dog was in the hardcore division, and his tag team partner, Billy Gunn, was in the Intercontinental division. At WrestleMania... Road Dog walked in as IC champion, and Billy Gunn walked in as Hardcore champion. Th- that didn't make any sense. That that uh, th- there was no reason for that. You know, I'm going to win the Champions League and be presented with the FA Cup. I mean, uh, only two matches on the card went over ten minutes, which and there was a lot of backstage stuff. Uh, the Undertaker hung the Big Boss Man, and then they had a legitimate boxing match between Butterbean and Bart Gunn, where. Bart Gunn got decimated in 35 seconds, and that was rumored to be his punishment for, for for having the audacity to win the tournament. Now, it was a good main event between uh, Steve Austin and The Rock, Austin Rock won, but, I mean, a mixed reception, and, yeah, fans and critics alike say that, you know, it's on the low end of WrestleManias. You know, um, there's been, as of recorded, there has been 34, and this one would probably rank in the lower 15, I guess. Maybe even lower than that. So, um, But one thing that I haven't mentioned so far. Now, we're in 1999. I did not mention them in 1998. But um, ECW has been relatively quiet. You know, they've settled into what they do. They've expanded nationally. And while they're still known for their hardcore stuff, I don't want to say they've toned it down, but it's gone under the radar a little more. Now, aside from one match, which featured a referee versus a woman, where the referee bled so bad, I mean... Good Lord, Bill Alfonso was a phenomenal referee, but um, he he bled in that match. They really, you know, really doesn't... Uh, Todd Gordon, the owner of ECW, uh, is is relieved of his duties in the company, allegedly for, the, for spying. Now, Gordon maintains that this didn't happen, and I believe him. But, I mean, you know, it just... It, it's been expanded, and it's getting bigger, and it's, you know, it's got video games, it's got, you know, and it, it finally gets a national TV deal. Uh, TNN, which would later become Spike, uh, picks up the rights for ECW. Uh, one of the things that they promised was uh, high-end advertising, premier spot on the on the uh, on the on the uh, schedule, and it ends up being eleven thirty on a Thursday night. Uh, ECW becomes the highest-rated show on TNN, but TNN executives hate the product. They do not want wrestling on their network, and they definitely don't want hardcore wrestling. So they refuse to advertise. They put them on at a, at a bad hour. Paul Heyman, the mad scientist of wrestling, goes on a live rant, goes on a rant live on ECW TV, saying that he's going to sue, and when their deal is up in 2000, they will leave, and they will take every penny that they've got with them. But, I mean, during this, TNN puts a disclaimer saying that this man is insane, please don't listen to him. Um, yeah. 
basically what people didn't know at the time, only people in the know knew, is that TNN did want wrestling on its uh, schedule, but they didn't want ECW. They've been secretly negotiating with um, with WWF. Um, which is so funny because when they when they left Spike, which is what TNN became, every mention of USA, they uh, they tried to bleep. So in the end, the WWF commentators were like, "Oh, USA, USA!" You know, the whole night it was it was it was kind of weird. But I mean, the TV deal did help ECW gain some more exposure, but it was like the beginning of the end for them. And you know, they they, they wouldn't really. I think gaining the TV deal was. They couldn't have survived long with it without it, but at the same time, with it, made the end come quicker. So, um, now this next part's gonna be hard to talk about. I know I've tried not to. I've tried to blend everything in together, but th- this is this is gonna be uh, hard to to speak of. Um, July of nineteen ninety nine. Again, WWF had you know everything's kind of settled down. You know, the wars. WWF is winning the Monday Night Wars. WCW is, is, you know, having a lot of infighting, but nothing really worth speaking about. Um, and then, over the edge, pay-per-view happens. And one of the nicest guys in wrestling, one of the greatest talents in wrestling, and certainly one of the greatest men never to win a world title, Owen Hart, has died in a stunt gone wrong. Uh, Owen Hart is... Playing the character of the Blue Blazer, which was his original gimmick back in the day. And Hart is afraid of heights. So in the rehearsal, Vince McMahon basically puts on the gear and abseils down the building and releases. And the plan was he would go down and release like about two feet off the floor and fall flat in his face. right? Because it was, it, was, it was supposed to be a comedy gimmick. Well, as Hart made his descent, the harness malfunctioned and opened, and Hart fell about 50 feet. Now, reports have varied whether he smashed chest first into the ring post, or if he uh, hit the ring rope. Um, he was pronounced dead on arrival, um, given medical attention, but, um, yeah. Uh, WWF continued the show that night. They, they, they really, really did. Um, Jim Ross said in an interview that um, he was asked by the producers to give an update on Owen, and Ross states that he didn't know what the update was, and they said, uh, Jim Owen is has passed. By the way, you're back on in five. And, you know, um, they announced live on air that Owen had, had passed. And they didn't tell anybody in the arena, but I think uh, people, you know, knew, kind of, they weren't stupid, they knew what was going on. Um... WWF was penned for this. They, they, you know, the show must go on. I mean, a lot of people thought that, you know, yeah, they th- they thought that it, that it was wrong that they continued the show. They should have stopped the show. Um, Vince Russo, in one of the very few times I will agree with him, states that there was no right way to handle the situation. Um, everybody was in total shock that a friend and a colleague had just died. The stress of putting a show on, nobody really knew what to do, and. They just carried on. Uh, making the point that, um, for example, that Owen Hart, uh, the, the day Brian Pillman died, he wrestled as, as kind of a tribute. Uh, so the next night, Monday Night Raw, special Raw is Owen took place. Uh, you didn't have to wrestle. Um, you, you know, everybody had tributes. Um, you know, they'd go on camera, talk about how great Owen was. Um, yeah. Um, everybody was visibly upset. 
Um, and at the beginning or the end of the show, I can't remember. I think it was the beginning of the show because at the end of the show, that's right, at the end of the show, Steve Austin was saluting with his uh, with a beer. Um, there was a ten bell salute at the beginning, and the only person not there was the Undertaker, who was visiting uh, Bret Hart at the time. Because they they were close, you know. Um, Bret Hart was devastated. It kind of Owen Hart dying in the way that he did kind of killed Bret Hart's passion for wrestling. And, you know, he was never the same again after that. Um, this doesn't end well either. I mean, an old man died, which obviously starts it off horrible, but this doesn't end well. Um, the Owen Hart family was awarded 18 million American dollars, to which, because he was Canadian, uh, to which uh, Martha Hart started the Owen Hart Foundation. Uh, Martha has, uh, Owen's wife has uh, distanced herself from the WWE. Um, Owen has featured on DVDs about his family, but she refuses to do extra business, which is understandable. I mean, you know, if 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 I died working where I work, I wouldn't want my wife to do business with him either. Um, Martha has sued WWF several times over unpaid royalties, and not only that, she's distanced herself from the rest of the Hart family. Um, yeah, you know, so, I mean, a lot of fans believe that uh, Owen Hart deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and I, I'm one of them, but, um, yeah. It's not going to happen anytime soon unless they can, you know, they can repair the relationship, which I don't see any time happening. <sighs> so let's go back to something a little more, a, a, a little more palatable, should we say. Um, WCW is sold by parent company Turner Broadcasting. Now, let me rephrase that. Turner Broadcasting is bought by AOL Tom Warner. Uh, at the time, WWF, w, excuse me, WCW is in a uh, horrible financial position. Uh, Two hundred million in debt for a start. Um, TV ratings slipping. A disharmony backstage, and plus, Tom Warner really does not want wrestling on their product. So what they do is they make a list of demands that they know that a wrestling company can't do. Like they want to see their their scripts three months in advance, and you know that doesn't happen because you book it week to week. Uh, they need to cut costs, and after five years in charge, Eric Bischoff is fired from his position as chief executive of WCW. He is replaced by WWF head writer Vince Russo, who signs a huge deal with WCW, along with Ed Ferreira, and is basically given run of the place. And that kind of is a nail in WCW's coffin to begin with. So all the money that they're in debt, all the creative control contracts that a handful of guys have... Bang. Now Vince Russo is in charge. Vince Russo did very, very good in WWF, but, and we'll get to it here in a minute, he can't do this stuff on his own. He also leaves with no notice and kind of leaves Vince McMahon in a lurch. Uh, McMahon is coming back from a European tour, and then he shows up at TV, and his head writer has taken a job with his competitor. You know, it just, uh, yeah... Just that kind of that kind of killed a lot of things that WCW had going on for it too, because one of the hallmarks of WCW at the time was that it still have a lot of wrestling as opposed to backstage stuff. Well, they increased WCW to three hours, and increased that the time having a show called Thunder. And yeah, we, we, we yeah, mm -mm. you know so. Yeah, that that was that was a nail in their coffin bringing in Vince Russo. Um, ECW, however, was not doing any better either. Um, Hall Heyman has been keeping ECW going, but money is bleeding. Um, he has a loyal 
loyal level of stars. Rob Van Dam, Sabu, Rhino, Tommy Dreamer, Jerry Lynn, just incredible. They keep the show a top-end product, and they remain loyal, I mean, to, to the bitter end. Other stars can see the writing on the wall. Uh, Taz goes to the WWF. The Dudleys jump to WWF. The Sandman jumps to WCW, as does Bam Bam Bigelow. These are really, really big stars for ECW at the time. They do get some guys back, like Raven, but, I mean, you know, it just it, it just doesn't work for them. Mike Awesome, who is the ECW champion, takes the belt to WCW in early 2000. I mean, Heyman's trying to keep this together, and the money problems are just getting worse, and ECW cannot keep up, and unfortunately, they lose their TV deal. ECW tries to carry on. I mean, they do do a handful of pay-per-view events. Um, they do their old hardcore TV show, which was in syndication, but... A year and a half later, they were done. And the way they were announced was that Paul Heyman showed up on WWF TV. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So what can you do? Um, WWF is also not having a good time either. Um, you got to remember now that the peak has been reached. WCW had it the year before. But WWF has major injuries crippling its main event scene. You had The Undertaker, who needs major hip surgery. Steve Austin, who... Um, after his neck injury that he suffered by Owen Hart, you know, he has to go away for a year to, to get neck surgery. Um, they run him over by a car, which is the dumbest storyline they ever had, but that's in 2000, so whatever. Um, Mick Foley was on the verge of retiring. I mean, WWF had The Rock and maybe Kane as their top big stars and Triple H. But the problem was, is that Foley was about to retire. The British Bulldog, Billy Gunn, were not seen as genuine main event talent. You know, they had several matches and feuds, but, I mean, they weren't they weren't ready for prime time, or they weren't believable in prime time. Uh, the Big Boss Man was not taken seriously as a main event player. Uh, the Big Show wasn't considered a main event player. And this basically left as The Rock as the big star with Triple H and Kane supporting him. So, you know, what happens is Mick Foley has to postpone his retirement, but we'll get to that here in a second. So WWF is struggling... And they would have, they would have gone, they would have started losing ground if Vince Russo decided to do things a different way. Now, one of the hallmarks of Vince Russo's writing is, you know, a lot of backstage, less talking, swerves, and the belts meaning nothing. Which, in some things, is 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 not what you do to an old-timey Southern wrestling promotion. That's just not. The WCW fans are still seen as an alternative to the WWF, and now all of a sudden, bang, it's the same. Um, Russo had checked power in WWF. McMahon would ring him in whenever he saw something, you know, in the words of Jim Conrad, I think these 90 ideas are completely not a crap, but I'll take these 10, you know? Um, so what does Russo do? I mean, he starts... Wrestler turns, more backstage stuff, like I mentioned. Um, bringing in guys who couldn't wrestle to be main event guys. He had no respect from the boys. And he even, they even started taking shots at, at Jim Ross. Now, Jim Ross was the head of talent in WWF. Uh, the color com- the, not the color commentator, the play-by-play commentator. And considered legitimately the voice of wrestling. Even more so than Gordon Soley. Um, you, ask, you ask anybody, it's, it's Ross or Soley. But Jim Ross suffers from Bell's palsy, which um, is, a, for lack of a better term, is facial paralysis. And Jim Ross kind of talks a little out of one side of his mouth 
not 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 in the terms he talks out of both sides of his mouth, meaning he's lying. Literally, you know, he he, he talks out of one side. It's because it's because of his illness. Well, Ed Ferrara becomes a TV personality playing a character called Oklahoma, wearing a cowboy hat and talking out of one side of his mouth, parodying Jr. Um, people want to hurt Ferrara. People do. People want to want to absolutely beat the the, the crap out of Ferrara. Um, the backstage is is a mess. Is abs- is absolutely a mess. Uh, the first day uh, that allegedly that Ed Ferrara met Roddy Piper, Roddy said, "Oh, so you two are the guys who who killed my cousin." Talking about Owen Hart, you know, it just was a mess. I mean, yeah. Um, Russo sees a sharp, sharp ratings decline, and basically put within three months, he is replaced by Kevin Sullivan. I mean, between September of nineteen ninety nine and January two thousand, WCW lost a host of mid card talent. You're only as good as your mid card in pro wrestling, and if you had a roster. That lost Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Satin, Dean Malenko, S.A. Rios, Shane Douglas, Stephen Regal, and Raven between September and January, September '99 and January of 2000. You're done as a promotion. You are absolutely done because that's basically the core of your mid card. You can't get that back. And then to top that off. You had Goldberg v. Bret Hart in Starcade 99. Now, the Starcade main events of the last couple of years had not been great. Bret Hart v. Goldberg was a really, really good match for the WCW Championship. At the time, Bret Hart was a two-time world champion, and his run had been underwhelming, to say the least, due to backstage politics, where he was kept down in the mid-card, and Bret honestly had a lack of enthusiasm. A combination of the Montreal Screwjob and his brother's death uh, led to that. Goldberg was not as popular as he may have been, um, with the long injury and the botched heel turn, and he got some of his momentum back, but not all the way, and then halfway through the match, Bret Hart is hit with a mule kick by Goldberg, and Bret strains several muscles in his neck and is given a horrible, horrible concussion, and Bret unfortunately would ignore that, and would retire a few months later due to post-concussion syndrome, um... It wouldn't get better for the Hitman either because he would have a stroke in 2002. Now, he would professionally make amends with the WWE. Welcome back into the family. He's now in the Hall of Fame. He's an ambassador and, you know, he's well-loved. And again, like Shawn Michaels before him, you know, they've, they've made up that, you know, he's he's now the legend that he needs to be. But, you know, that was a horrible way for WCW to end end the millennium, because 2000's WCW was a dumpster fire, and, you know, that's another story for another day, maybe when somebody does a 2000's podcast, they can tell you that, but WWF takes advantage of the chaos that's in WCW, they had a good roster of young talent, but none were really established, so what did WWF do? Mick Foley, as I've mentioned many times before, will do anything to help the business, so he postpones his retirement, and chooses to help Triple H become a main event genuine star. Triple H was a two-time world champion at that point, but he was not seen as a genuine star, he was seen as a placeholder. And in January 2000 at the Royal Rumble, Triple H would be elevated because of the fight that him and Mick Foley had. And Triple H would retire Mick Foley in a Hell in a Cell match, where Foley fell through the cage, only this time it was planned. Um, And then Triple H would, would, you know, 
feud with The Rock for the rest of the year. Uh, the main event scene in 2000 was some of WWF's best main event. I mean, I know I'm talking about 2000 right at the minute because, you know, we got to end this on a, on a slightly happy note. Uh, but, I mean, you had in the main event scene Triple H, The Rock, Steve Austin, The Big Show, The Undertaker, Kane, Chris Jericho, Kurt Angle, and... That is a hell of a main event scene. All of these guys had individual and multi-man matches with the world title. I think would be uh, main event and stuff like a few months after he joined. You know, they all had runs uh, going for Intercontinental Gold. You know, Austin would return, but was limited. What are you doing in the ring and retired in 2003? But, I mean, yeah, just the year 2000 was probably WWF's best year. Ironically, it was WCW's worst year because WCW botched a lot of things, had 20 world championship reigns in the year, including like six or seven vacants. So so that's really it. That's what happened with pro wrestling in the 90s. Um, I mean, you know, what happened next? Well, within a six-week period in 2001, WCW and ECW had both closed their door. Uh, the mismanagement caused them to, to WCW to close, and ECW closed because basically Paul Heyman could not organize his finances as best as he could um now eric bischoff and paul Heyman would eventually end up working for wwf in the in the upcoming years acting as on-screen authority figures and in Heyman's case backstage um wwe would require the rights to both companies for under five million dollars so all the video library all the, the 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 trademarks everything five million um they tried to capitalize on this by running the invasion angle, but that flopped due to uh, lack of interest, lack of stars. Um, ECW and WCW joining forces, you know. Um, now, eventually, all the main WCW stars would join WWE, uh, with the exception of Jeff Jarrett, who, who, even though he's in the Hall of Fame, doesn't work for WWE, and Sting, who would eventually join in 2014, and, you know, would retire in 2015. WWF would change its name to World Wrestling Entertainment in 2001 uh, due to a lawsuit by the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, the Wildlife Fund was called WWF long before Capital Sports was even a thing, which became WWWF, which became WWF, which became WWE. Um, WWF thought they would get the fans that were from both promotions, but... Um, there was a reason they weren't watching the WWF. So, uh, WCW was spiritually replaced by NWA TNA, which is now known as Impact Wrestling, and ECW was spiritually replaced by several promotions, including uh, Ring of Honor and CZW. Uh, Ring of Honor took the fan base, and CZW took the hardcore elements. Um, as we speak right now, uh, there is a kind of a mini boom happening in the industry. Britain and Japan are hotbeds of wrestling, and the US has several small promotions with loyal followings, and you know, smaller promotions are getting better and better. It's not nowhere near the, the you know the peak, and it's nowhere near wh where it's going to be. In fact, you know, if the peak was at this, it'd be laughable. But it's it's a good way to say that the minor leagues are flourishing. That's the best way to do that. Uh, women's wrestling is now seen in the ascent. Um, Impact Wrestling would start showing their women as athletes until Vince Russo got his hands on them, and that led to promotions like Shimmer uh, starting. Shimmer is an all female promotion. Uh, the WWF would finally follow suit. Um, there are rumors right now that the main event for WrestleMania 35 is going to be Ronda Rousey versus Charlotte Flair. Um, you know, that'd be good. Um, and ironically, just like how the WWF took over nationally, 
the rise of the internet has helped small promotions get their name out there. So there is more variety. There is everything that wrestling fans can look for. However, WWF, WWE is still stuck in their own mentality, which is Vince McMahon knows best, and this is what we're going. I don't want to jump on the Roman Reigns hate wagon because I think it's ridiculous, but I will say this. Roman Reigns is not who the fans want, and they want him to go to, to become a bad guy, and they want, you know, WWF to, 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 to listen to them. And they're not. WWE is not listening to their fans. Now, I'm not saying the fans know best, but, um, you know, WWF has got a lot of talent. WWE has got a lot of talent. That's why I haven't spent three hours saying WWF, folks. Uh, WWE has got a lot of talent. Uh, guys like Daniel Bryan, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, Seth Rollins, and... WWF, WWE is still pushing the big, slow, lumbering guys. Jinder Mahal, Randy Orton, um, Braun Strowman. Strowman's good, don't get me wrong. Roman Reigns is good, too, but the fans want a little bit more. They want something a little bit more contemporary, and so far, WWE is not acquiescent to it. And that's leading to a lot of a lot of ill will these days. And with the rise of the smaller promotions, WWE need to heed the fans' warning because they will go away, just like they went away from WCW back in the day so guys that's it that's a very very in-depth look and i only scratched the surface on a lot of these things there are a lot more things that happened that i just kind of glossed over but they were i didn't think they moved the decade forward and moved you know what was going on forward so there are plenty of plenty of things that we still have left and we talk about who was the wwf champions in the 1990s in the 1990s the wwf had major ups and downs for many, their cartoon world of wrestling was stale and unoriginal, so much so that they lost a lot of ground to WCW. But, like WCW, when it came to their world champion, they always tried to put the best men for the gig on top. This week we look at the men who were WWF champions in the 90s, and like last week, we're not looking at individual reigns, but who held the belt during this time. We start with who else but Hulk Hogan. Hogan came into the 90s as champion. He would hold the belt on three other occasions in the 90s, as well as being the biggest star in WWF. Then Hulkamania is here to stay, and what you gonna do? At Mania 6, the IC champion, Ultimate Warrior, would defeat Hogan in a title versus title match. This match is considered a classic. Their rematch in WCW, eh, not so much. Come from behind, or take a cheap shot at anyone, or anything! In 1991, during the height of the invasion of Kuwait, Sergeant Slaughter defeated the Warrior with a little help from Randy Savage. Later that year, The Undertaker would win the first of his three reigns in somewhat controversial circumstances. I'm here to do what I do best, and that's to bury any man that gets in my way. <laughs> the Nature Boy Ric Flair made history at the 1992 Raw Rumble becoming the first man to win a Royal Rumble from under number 20, and becoming WWF Champion in the process. He is also the first man to win both the WWF and WCW Championships. With a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. Ric Flair would lose the belt to Randy Savage at WrestleMania 8 for Savage's only reign of the decade. Later on in the year, a dynasty was started, as Bret Hart would win the first of his five championships in the decade. The excellence of execution is on top, and I'm planning on staying there, so bring every single thing you've got. 
Hart would lose the title to Yokozuna at WrestleMania 9, who in turn would have two reigns as champion, interrupted by a Hulk Hogan power play. WWF Heavyweight Champion, Yokozuna, Spider! 1994 was a slow year for new champions, however two interesting names would wear the gold. Former world champion Bob Backlund would win his first title of the 90s, and lose it just days later to Diesel, Kevin Nash, in Madison Square Garden for his only reign as WWF Champion. Professor Diesel has just graded your paper! and has given you an F, and Bob, he's kicked you out of school. We would have to wait until 1996 for a new hand to touch the gold, as Shawn Michaels would win the first of his three championships in the very first Iron Man match. However, he would lose the belt to Sid later in the year for the first of Sid's two reigns. Okay, Sarge, we'll start showing you some respect. Suck it! <laughs> Again, we would wait two years for a new champion, but in 1998, Steve Austin would win the first of his four 90s World Championships. Two of them sandwiched in between Kane's one and only championship win. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Later that year, a rivalry would be so intense that real-life marriages and friendships were almost broken, as The Rock and Mick Foley, as Mankind, would battle over the championship between November and February. Both The Rock and Foley would walk away with three 90s reigns. And The Rock damn sure plans on laying the smack down on your candy ass. Later, in 1999, Triple H would win the first of his two World Championships of the 90s, both times losing it to first-time champions. The first was WWF owner Vince McMahon, and finally, to round out the decade and the century, The Big Show became the fourth man to hold the WCW and WWF Championships in the process. You guys talk about being students of the game. I am the game, JR. Overall, 18 men held the WWF Championship in 40 reigns in the decade. Now, while WCW had fewer champions and reigns, WWF had awesome star power as well. So, to sum up, if you were a champion in WWF or WCW, you were considered the elite of your profession. Attention 90s music fans! If you are in the Northwest Louisiana area of the world on June 1st and June 2nd, come to Samstown Live for a night of 90s music and entertainment featuring the 2017 Arclitex Rock Band of the Year, The Holodex. Showtime is at 9pm and a valid ID is required for the purchase of alcohol. Entry for this night of 90s entertainment is absolutely free. That's right, there's no charge at the door. For more information on the band and for dates in your area of the world, go to theholodex.com. That's the hollow, H-O-L-L-O-W, dex.com. And check out the band on Facebook at Holodex. That was a lot of information, wasn't it? Um, 
thank you very much for everybody who's taken the time to listen to uh, this stuff. I know uh, if you're a wrestling fan, this might have been in you know intriguing for you. If not, sorry, but I hope I put a lot of information in there to make you understand why it was an important enough subject. So last week on social media, we asked, at its peak, which of the three organizations was better? WWF, ECW, or WCW? Uh, the best answer came from Ben, who said WCW. They accidentally changed the whole landscape and then imploded. If that isn't what the 90s were about, then I don't know what was. Great answer. I agree, at its peak, WCW was far, far ahead of WWF. That might be what you and I think, Ben, but unfortunately, the people have spoken, and WWF won by a landslide. So, there you go. The people have spoken. So thanks for everybody taking the time out to do that. So check out our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Look at Because Maybe Pod. We'll have more questions from our social media page very, very soon. In fact, there's probably one up before this episode, but that will be tied into next week's show. Um, so like I said, we've, we're done with professional wrestling for the time being. Um, if there's anything that you guys want us to talk about, we'll go ahead and do it. But next week, we go back into one of my favorite topics. And in fact, my favorite album of all time. The reason I'm using this is because I think this is the greatest debut album of all time. So next week, I'm going to be reviewing Definitely Maybe by Oasis. Uh, How it came about, the stories that were in there, track-by-track analysis, and my own opinion on why I think it is potentially the greatest debut album of all time. But social media question is very, very simple. Aside from Oasis, can you name a band who you believe that their debut album was their best work? And I'll get to why I think this is Oasis' best work next week. So, guys, you have a fantastic week. Don't do anything that I wouldn't do. Eat spicy food, eat a lot of chocolate, play a lot of video games, and don't jump off a cliff. That's really what we've got. So, uh, no, seriously, all joking aside, everybody have a great week, and I will see you next time. See you, guys. Uh, attention 90s music fans.